Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. John Dugan. John is a professor in the Higher Education Program at Loyola University Chicago. Prior to his academic appointment, he worked in administrative positions in higher education at the University of Maryland and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. John serves as the principal investigator for the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership. And relevant to our discussion today, John is also the author of the recently released book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Welcome, John. Hello, how are you? Good, good. So I just wanted to provide sort of a quick introduction to what we're going to be doing here. So this episode begins an attempt at something a little new for the NASPA Leadership Podcast. So uh, what's going to follow is the first part in a five uh, in a five in a series of five episodes on John's new book. We're going to do a deep dive, and I think that this is important for several reasons. One, uh, one of the most respected scholars in the field, uh, Julie Owen, and an excellent student leadership practitioner, Jimmy Brown, recently said that this book was going to change the field, and I think they're right. And I think that this book is an amazing starting point for a survey course in 2017, and to me, feels like mandatory reading for student leadership practitioners. So I think, put simply, I just think it's worth the time. So today's conversation is going to introduce the concepts uh, presented in the book, and I'm going to push for some themes and sort of big picture thoughts. And then the next episode is going to feature curricular applications to follow with the show on co-curricular uses. And then the fourth episode will be a panel of the authors um, of the counter narratives that are featured at the end of every chapter. And then the fifth episode is still under discussion. I'm trying to feature John Moore. He wants to feature himself less, so we'll see how that ends up. <laughs> and uh, then the other part of this is that we're going to switch to a full conversational format for this episode in particular. So I'll be facilitating the conversation, but we're going to structure things a little bit less than usual. And honestly, I would say to sort of get things started, I don't think I've ever had a harder time forming my questions for a discussion. And I've had to work through sort of the many places that my mind has wandered. And I feel a real privilege in being able to discuss this with you, John. Uh, but wanted to get to what a like an actual linear uh, conversation that might <laughs> that might get to the to the book. So with that all being said, let's jump into the important stuff. Can you tell me about the cover art? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me share. Thank you so much, Miles, for your generosity around the book and um, this opportunity. So my hope is that it will have an impact and that people will find it useful and it might change the way we, we are thinking. So um, the cover art is interesting. So I have learned a lot about publishing this process myself and thought, oh, aren't, you know, what makes a good cover? What what what's striking and had all of these visions of what that would look like and then was sent three options by the publisher <laughs> and they said which of these do you like and one um my husband said looked very much like some type of space amoeba and he <laughs> thought it might frighten people the other looked like um sort of like a graphic for leadership for dummies so it had sort of that yellow font with like a, almost like a chalkboard oh. and i thought mm, might not cue the right piece and then there was this cover mm -hmm. um which you know it's interesting. <laughs> Maybe we should leave it at that. Okay. I think it communicates blue and structure, uh, which is not what the book is about, but <laughs> um, yeah, let's leave it at that, Miles. Okay, great, great. All right, so... Uh, to move inside the book a little bit, and before we get to the structure of the book, not the structure presented on the cover, <laughs> but um, in the preface, you talk about the confluence of your identities with critical social theory. So how do you balance your identities with the content of this book? Uh, yeah, that is a great question. So one of the things we did when we wrote, and I, I want to just maybe put out 
up front that this book isn't just me. It is the work of a team of so many ridiculously brilliant and talented students who are part of our book club and spent really three years reading, researching, holding dialogues around each of the theories. And so it really is the coming together of a lot of people's ideas. Um, and so all of those identities were in the room as we were, were sort of engaging that process. And then I feel like I bear the responsibility in the final product of making sure that I situate myself. So I think through the whole process we were playing with, how do our identities shape how we relate to these theories, what it looks like. Certainly as um, a white cisgender man, um, I come to the conversation feeling like um, I have a whole lot of privilege that um, perhaps even the ability to write a book on deconstruction and reconstruction for some um, is a function of my privilege. Uh, and so that means I have even more responsibility in how I write it and what I do. And it's certainly not perfect, but trying to negotiate that while I was writing it versus sort of name it and walk away from it for the rest of the text um, became essential. And then, you know, I think, you know, in the intersection of my identities, I do have some subordinate identities that I think shape how I understood leadership to begin with. So for me, it was not a positive thing. Leadership was the province of the elite. It was something I didn't have access to from a socioeconomic status. Um, I felt there was a prototype of what a, who a leader was. And while I fit it in terms of whiteness and gender, the performance of masculinity was, some, was not aligned with my own gender performance. And um, so there was all these distancing things. And so I think that provided an inroad into thinking about leadership in different ways. Um, but you know, I think anytime you engage in this, we are what we write about. And so that then shows up in almost every, every chapter, every sort of deconstruction that I take, how I deconstruct it might be uh, a particular theory might be wildly different than how you would deconstruct it simply because of our social location. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to, I thought it would not be in the spirit of the book to not acknowledge social location prior to prior to our conversation. So. Yeah. I mean, did you, as you were reading the book, feel like your own social location showed up and what resonated or what didn't? Mm. Um, I think that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I think there were probably moments where, uh, so I hold, you know, like pretty much you like pick any bucket of privilege that you can and I, you can just pull it out and put it on me. So, um, you know, so I hold a lot of majority identities. And so, um, I think it's, it's hard to know, particularly when you're preparing for something like this five-part series that we're doing where mm -hmm. I don't want to just spend the whole time talking about how great the book is and ask right. some tough questions, which I think is definitely what uh, you want as presented in the mm -hmm. book about the book itself. It's hard to know in most of these conversations if what you're critiquing and questioning as you're reading is a product of your social location or whether yeah. it's like objective, you know, objective, objective criticism. So, um, I think I always like my process as a, as a privileged person is always to say, you know, if something is, I find something to be, you know, like, uh, frustrating or I find, you know, myself pushing against an idea. I think I, I, basically have a discipline where I always ask myself, like, you know, how are my privileges impacting the way that I'm responding to this? Um, so, I, I mean, I think that that's sort of how my social location showed up in reading yeah. things. But well, and that's a great example of critical self-reflection, right? Mm -hmm. So to immediately think about our the power structure and how we're embedded and nested in that and how that plays out. I mean, look, I think one of the things that 
I had a whole lot of fear about in writing this book was what happens when it's actually out there and it's print and I can't change it anymore. Mm-hmm. And at some point I was changing it so much simply because I would dig into something and, and you know, sometimes it was a family member, sometimes it was a, a colleague, sometimes a student on the team who would then push and say, you know, what you're really not doing is this. Mm-hmm. And realizing, well, that's clearly tied to privilege in some way. And so then having to go back and rewrite and coming to understand that this is going to be imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not going to push hard enough for some people. It is not going, it's going to push too hard for other people in some ways. Sure. And realizing that getting it out there as a, as a text that could be a, a site for a conversation is an important starting point. Um, but I appreciate the question because the starting point inherently for all of us is our relationships to our identities and our relationships to theory. And I often say that one of the hardest parts of working with theory is that we form these bonds to theories, whether it's inherently, whether it's a theory I hate and I can't, I couldn't even tell you why I dislike it, but it's triggering something for me Mm. um, or something that I love that I'm resistant to changing simply because it's given me a sense of salvation or connection or um, helped me see inside a system but it's still inherently flawed. Mm-hmm. And understanding our relationships to these theories, I think, is also part of it, too. It's not just that we have these identities that show up. It's that these identities interact, and then they interact in the context of the things to which we're exposed mm-hmm. that either validate or don't validate our lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting sort of transition to the to the first chapter of the book, which it talks about... Uh, which talks about theory and sort of the structures of theory. Um, and I think it pivots nicely. There was a, a phrase that you used a couple of times in that chapter that I thought was really interesting and, and is, I, I think, aligned with what you're saying, which was you talked about making meaning or sense-making, which, you know, sense-making is a, like a cognitive behavior therapy mm-hmm. term. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about theory as this is this way of, like, a way in which we seek answers. And then, you know, a lot of what you're saying in this book is that none of those theories are providing us with perfect answers, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, someone asked me about this recently, and I said, you know, I think some of it comes because I went through a counseling-based program where on day one, as a master's student, we were told we were going to give you this book of counseling theories. None of them are going to help you (laughs) when you actually go out and do counseling. Uh So the reality is you're going to have to build some type of eclectic approach because none of these are written for the, the, the diverse array of people with whom you'll interact. None of them are going to give you the full tool set you need. You have to have the agency to create your own. And so, you know, part of, I'd be curious what you think about this, Miles. So so much of this book for me is about engaging in dialectical thinking. So how do you hold two seemingly divergent things constant, right? Um, an example I usually use is I had a supervisor once who was wonderful. I owe so much to this individual for what they did for me, how they trained me. But at times, this individual also, um, I think, was a little controlling, a little parental, right? And so um, in that first sort of early years of my career, that was hard. Um, And so I could either say this person was controlling and I don't now, you know, have a good relationship with them, or I could say, yes, that's true, and I wouldn't be where I am today without that person. So how do you hold both of those constant? And I think one of the things that needs to be held constant, and I try and get across in the book, is that 
um, so much of this work around leadership ends up becoming one or the other, competency-based skill development or sense-making. So in the leadership studies literature, there's all of this beautiful writing about sense-making and that the work of leadership is really about collective sense-making um, versus sense-giving and telling someone mm -hmm. how they should make meaning. But I think, you know, in our work with leadership education, I've, I mean, if you look at the work with MSL, a lot of it is competency-based. And I think that's easier to focus on because it's more tangible. Mm -hmm. If you can teach someone to engage in complex sense-making, they carry that with them everywhere they go. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's leadership theory, if it's organizational theory, student development theory, they'll continue to apply that skill set and continue to evolve it. Um, but you don't see the immediate results. It's a long-term mm -hmm. return on investment, you know? And mm -hmm. so I think that's a hard shift for us when we're often asked to have very tangible products. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's certainly true. And I'm, I'm someone who, uh, I have, uh, one of our faculty members, I participated in the Mid-Managers Institute last year uh, for Region 2, and one of our faculty members is someone who I hold in very high esteem, which is Dr. Lynette Cook-Francis at John Jay. And she described herself uh, in that, uh, in a conversation at MMI, she described herself as not being a joiner. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that for people, I, I that was like a moment where I was like, yes, there's an identity for me, not a joiner. Yeah. Um, and I think for, for people like me, uh, I found that first chapter about theoretical uncertainty to be really liberating because I think that when we operate, and I think sometimes this happens particularly in student leadership programs where we're pushed to sort of our work has to be grounded in one idea mm -hmm. and then we build everything out from that one idea. And I just think that that oversimplifies things and I think it creates a context that to, you know, think about a lot of the, uh, a lot of the deconstruction strategies that were used in this book that uh, <clears throat> I think it creates a situation where it's not it, it the answers that it's providing and the solutions that it's providing are are too simple and there are almost certainly people that are being excluded from those answers. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the fascinating findings that Susan Komovez spent so much time. I think unpacking and asking us to wrestle with from MSL was this idea that initially when we studied the impact of formal leadership programs on college campuses that long-term programs largely had a negative impact mm -hmm. and it was the short-term programs that were having a positive impact on learning outcomes and what we teased out from that was that most not all but most long-term programs don't compound the complexity so as you, you know, think of it as a book, as you go through the book, each chapter should become more sophisticated than the chapter that preceded it so that you're not just being exposed to the same thing over and over again. Because the more you're exposed to the same thing, the more it sends an implicit message that this isn't that complex. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, when I was early in my career at UNLV, I, I have to own I was totally complicit in saying we are the social change model, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is what we are going to do on this campus. And you know, I think retrospectively that was a real disservice. So I think we need, you know, the dialectical in that, in what I heard you say that, I, that I'm coming to, I think is that having a shared language, really important, particularly, particularly if you're engaging sense-making. So having the same sort of starting point is really useful, whether that's the social change model, it's leadership challenge, it's servant leadership, whatever it might be. But that if that, if that becomes the resting point mm. and we never expose to anything else, then perhaps 
we've actually implicitly said leadership is really only about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this sort of series of boxes and arrows that connect some ideas together will resolve any leadership issue that will emerge. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that contributes to the reductionistic mindset. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think it would be helpful uh, to uh, just have folks understand, uh, have a basic understanding of the structure. So can you provide a quick summary of how you decided to put things together and just sort of walk us through the book sort of quickly? Sure. Well, um, an easy an easy question, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there was like 18 different iterations of an ed at one point. My poor editor was like, how about you just finish it? <laughs> so, you know, I think where it landed as a final product was how do we set up in a cha- our first three chapters a framing device that helps people then have exposure and think differently about how they consume theories uh, as learners. And so, you know, the first chapter really sets the stage of, you know, not just the story most often told, but the architecture of leadership. So when we're talking about theory, where do these concepts come from? It tries to give a little more exposure, I think, to uh, things from leadership studies that don't always appear in the college student leadership literature, like epistemology and how epistemology then shapes how we understand leadership. Um, Things like power and authority and going a little more deeply into that. Uh, That architecture then gets deconstructed in and of itself a bit. So chapter two is all about then critical perspectives. And it takes three meta themes from critical social theory. And I just want to acknowledge this is not a book on critical social theory. It will not satisfy those needs. Um, That is a much larger topic that incorporates everything from uh, multiple feminisms, critical race theory, um, you know, the German philosophers, um, intersectionality, queer theory are sometimes lumped under that umbrella. Uh, But what we did is we attempted to say, are there themes across all of these ways of making meaning or epistemologies that could then inform leadership education? So we introduced these three themes of stocks of knowledge, uh, ideology and hegemony, and social location that then become sort of the lens to interpret the rest of the book. And then chapter three then sort of breaks down the story most often told and challenges some of the assumptions. Then the, the middle part of the book is really then about putting sets of theories together and saying how do they relate to one another um, as opposed to existing in a vacuum and then how can we practice the art of deconstruction and reconstruction. And part of what we really tried to emphasize in the book is that um, I would argue that and again, I want to own my complicity in all of this this whole time, is I was great at teaching how to critique theory, right? Mm. And oftentimes in my classes, we never got to the reconstruction part. So students would leave thinking, well, is there any hope for this? Why are we studying this to begin with? So really, over the course of about nine chapters, increasing the sophistication of both um, the complexity of theories uh, that are in the chapters, as well as the sophistication of the deconstruction and potential reconstructions. And I'd also share that the reconstructions aren't meant to resolve completely and perfect the theories. They're incremental advances that help us. And then each of those chapters throughout the book have counter narratives that are really designed to sort of say, you know, what are the stories and voices that need to be amplified um, that aren't in the literature? What is the learning, the rich, rich learning that can happen from people's lives? And not um, you know, we made a conscious choice not to focus just on students, but to pull people from a, across age groups, from across disciplines, and showcase, regardless what the context is, how are they negotiating some of these themes. Okay, 
Great. Is, I'm curious, is that how you experience the book? Because, you know, you write a book and you're like, here's what I meant it to be <laughs> versus how it's read. I think so. Yeah, I think that that's how, I think that that's probably how I would describe. I don't know. I think that my experience of it was maybe a little bit more linear than that. You know, yeah. I, I think that I, uh, I think sort of my experience was leadership theory, critical social theory, deconstructing the story most often told and then using everything that we learned in the first three chapters mm-hmm. to then analyze most of the models that are out yep. there and there's also you know you you put these uh, these book in theories on on the the theoretical clusters that you uh, that you were uh, analyzing mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was interesting to have to have those bookends as well and then sort of you know the bookends with what does this all mean so yeah well you know the interesting part for me is I, I turned the manuscript in it was in production and I was like oh darn it I, I was immediately wanting to shift the clusters mm. and say, did I put these things in the right order? And I'm reading it, and I was piloting some things in classes and thought, oh, gosh, I want to change it already. But that was also part of the design. So there's this model at the beginning that says, here's how these theories relate. But it should be living. So um, my hope is that the reader then says, oh, Dugan, why did you put this in this chapter? I think it should have gone in this chapter. Mm. Or you left this out entirely, and it's so essential to this. And that the reader has the agency to restructure almost like Legos and put things back together in a way that fits best for them and their interests. Hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, those theoretical clusters that, yeah. that sort of make up the, the theories that you chose to analyze, how did you, how did you decide to organize, organize those? Yeah. Well, some of it is, um, you know, most texts will progress in a very linear fashion and tell a story of how leadership has evolved that is based on dates and times. Mm -hmm. Um, That reinforces a very dominant narrative, I think, because it's typically based on changing epistemologies. So you have sort of these very rigid quantitatively emergent studies that then you have some um, constructivist studies that come in. But the reality is those other ways of making meaning are happening simultaneously all the way through. So I wanted to disrupt some of that. Part of what I wanted to do was also say we, you know, in in these texts, we often have a reinforcement of the dominant narrative or the story most often told through what is chosen to be included and what has it. So you take the social change model, for example, still not included in any other major text that covers theories broadly. I find that problematic. It is the single most documented empirically through multiple studies theory applied in the higher ed context. It's now being used in engineering. It's being used in the military. It's being used well outside of higher ed, but not included anywhere. You take uh, Sonia Espina's brilliant work on strategic strategic social change. Appears nowhere um, in these uh, standardized texts. And then, you know, uh, some of it is humorous to me, but you take something like connective leadership. Jean Lippmann Blumen, brilliant scholar in leadership studies, starts writing about these sort of interdependent and diversity, interdependence and diversity as ways of making meaning around leadership. And her book, in theory, is nominated in a final, it's for the Pulitzer Prize, it is not included anywhere. How does that get omitted from a, a, a major text? So some of it was by disruption. Um, and so how do you sort of challenge what's normative? The other part, I think, was how do we think about the progression? So if you take something like LID, uh, the Leadership Identity Development Model, and how someone cognitively makes meaning, look, I mean, to be candid, how I, I you know, I, leaders were where it was at. So it makes sense to me to say, okay, there have been over time 
not in a linear way, this revisiting of person-centered theories that are all about what should the individual leader do. And some have increased in sophistication, but ultimately there's a set of theories that really that's the focus and goal of them. Um, just like there's a set of theories that are really about efficiency and, and how do you make management systems work, and that's appropriate. Um, some came out in the 50s, some are still coming out today. And so how do we partner those together um, in a way that makes sense rather than just going in a linear way? Hmm. Okay, great. So I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about the process of deconstruction. Sure. So deconstruction, as you, as you use in the, in the book, is using those, using those themes. So using stocks of knowledge, ideology, and hegemony, and uh, social location, and then applying that to different theories and asking sort of new questions of mm -hmm. the theories themselves. So um, I wanted to talk about that process for you. Uh, this is a small field, and yeah. you know well, like uh, some of the people that you were that you were analyzing their theories are mentors. Some of them yeah. are personal friends, um, and you put those folks under the microscope. So, how did you approach critiquing your peers? Oh God, this was like brutal, right? Okay, so um, I actually, I'll be curious how you received this, having read the book, Miles. Um, you know, so the first piece of this is uh, in as many of the listeners will know in. A, the academy sometimes is built on critique. And um, that's never felt particularly comfortable for me. I'm more of a connected knower in how I come to understand things. And so th this was the part where I, I really struggled. But the way I struggled through it was to say, let's sit in a room with, you know, phenomenal colleagues like Dr. Leslie Ann Brown Henderson, phenomenal students like Ali Shipma and Kamaria Porter and let's do this together so we can check our own positionality, but we can also check when we deviate from an ethic of care. And that was something that uh, Dr. Amy Barnes, who's one of our collaborators and on the facilitator guide as an editor had said early on, if we do it from an ethic of care and not from a place of just dismissal, that will be helpful. And I keep going back to a quote from uh, Zeus Leonardo, who's a, an educational critical social theorist, who said that um, any, any sort of pedagogy or scholarship based solely on the practice of critique is a scholarship of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And that it is not about dismissal, it's about deconstruction. And look, there's some theories where I would love to dismiss them. And when I felt that way, I had to stop, pause and say, okay, is this about my relationship to the theory? Am I writing it in a way that is fair? Um, if I have a need to dismiss, what's that really about? Is there still some seed that I can take out of this theory and use? Um, but at the same time, like it's a little nerve wracking to say, hey, Sonia Espina, you're one of my heroes and now I'm going to put your theory in the book and present it and hopefully do justice by it or you know Susan Komovez you've mentored me my whole career let's talk about relational leadership and some of you know the strengths of that and problems and um, it, it you know it's not easy so I think that ethic of care became the filter through which to put things and then you know the other part is I have a little bit of um, what a colleague said is sarcastic sassiness. <laughs> and so I had to lean off at times when it was too sarcastic or sassy and other times lean into the sassiness and say, okay, like, let's just acknowledge, 
you know, all of this is flawed. And, you know, I think the last thing I would just share is um, hopefully it comes through by the end of the book that my deconstructions are my deconstructions, right? It's not how you, Miles, are going to deconstruct it. And that's okay. So people should disagree with them. They should say, you know, I think you've got it all wrong, John. I would deconstruct it and reconstruct it in this way. Um, but there are some factual pieces that I tried to embed to support the rationale for that that often get left out of the theories. So the, the research that has brought us up to date with whether they can actually be operationalized, information that's not necessarily often provided about theories in the background. So I, I hope that that all came through. I mean, what do you think? Did you um, worry for <laughs> particular theories as you read through them around uh, how they were deconstructed? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't sort of have, I don't really subscribe to sort of like a, any sort of theoretical orthodoxy. So I don't have like a, you know, like I don't have a, a theory that I like is really attached to my heart. So uh -huh. it wasn't, there wasn't one that I was like, oh gosh, I feel like that was, that was really unfair. Um, you know, and, and I also have enough sort of insider knowledge to know like your relationship with Susan and like, yeah. uh, and you know, and some of that information. So, um, you know, I, I think that it was more, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like there was a lot of, you know, I don't think you, I mean, certainly I, I think your treatment of relational leadership is, I don't think anyone could say that you really backed off there. I mean, yeah. it was, it was a pretty thorough critique. So, um, we had this, um, great pre-con here at NASPA yesterday and one of the individuals uh, in the session I was so grateful for because at one point she sort of stopped and said you know I can do the deconstruction the reconstruction is really hard for me um, and where I'm getting stuck is that I care about these theories but also who am I like do I have the full range of information to critique this theory in this way what if I critique something unfairly um, and I think that awareness is always present for me of I know what I don't know, and I feel like I know what I don't know more than I know what I know. Mm -hmm. That was really confusing how I said that, but I hope it makes sense to the listeners, right? Uh -huh. And she was brilliant because part of what she talked about was really our socialization and education. So we're not socialized in the U.S. to engage dialogically in education it is you know the presentation of facts and information and what the book is asking people to do is to sort of reclaim their own agency with theory and saying you don't you will never know everything you need to know but that doesn't mean you should not critique that you shouldn't engage in through a lens of an ethic of care in the deconstruction process and you know in this conversation at the NASPA precon um, what I left with that I learned from her was this sort of light bulb went off that said, what, who benefits when we don't deconstruct, even if the deconstructions are incredibly flawed? Who benefits? Well, the system benefits. The story most often told benefits because it doesn't want us to critique. Um, the system, I would argue, is predicated on us um, as being passive receivers of knowledge versus critical learners. Uh, and so I'd rather see someone critique and be open to a critique of their critique, which is, you know, at the heart of critical social theory that I think sometimes people forget and um, engage in that way rather than not critique at all because they're worried they don't have um, the, the agency, the expertise or the knowledge to do so. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think my sort of feeling about the, the reading of the book generally is that if... 
if there was you know a way where where things aired, it was I think it it felt to me like you were reining in there at points that sarcastic assiness to the yeah. point <laughs> to the point where it felt like maybe there were points where you kind of let um, particularly I think particularly in it in with the theories that I I think you from my reading and from conversations that I think you don't really subscribe to you in an in, you know trying to be professional and trying yeah. to not uh, seem biased I think maybe let those folks off the hook a little bit more than I mean like for instance your critique of strengths-based leadership I uh, from my reading it doesn't seem like you find a lot of value in that in that work um, and you know and I think there was a point where you maybe outright could have said they won't give us the data they profit from not giving mm-hmm. us the data and so how can we actually know that this works there the data that they give us validates the concept which then makes them more money yep you know and i think you know and i think that there was probably and i think that you thought that and i think i could read between the lines that you yeah. thought that but i i felt like there was a moment where you could have just said you know like for those of you who you know using strengths classes in a personality assessment is a you know and is for career vocation it's a great idea i think we've just gone over a bridge too far and yep. trying to use it for leadership studies so um i that is so totally true so you have like hit the nail on the head right so for me um that ethic of care probably trumped in some ways you know if you got me in a room and we had a glass of wine or a a great moscow mule we might have a different conversation than what i would put in print in that way and some of that was finessing as i was writing and some wanting to be fair you know i think um where i think you could probably critique me even more on that is that you know relationships matter to me and so um being worried that my voice would then shape the reader's opinion too much and wanting them to come away saying, here's my opinion of this Mm -hmm. and not just regurgitate what I said was probably a part of that. Um, I'm thinking immediately right now of um, several theories where it was very hard for me not just to go to dismissal. Mm. So probably what you, you, you're reading is my sort of edging back and trying to um, create space for my own positionality or what I don't know. So it, I think what you're reading is my struggle with the very thing we just talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting piece where um, I think that for me in all of this, how do you engage in a human way? So, you know, I think almost even in our contemporary culture right now with everything that's happening politically, there's sort of this need to cut people off, to cut off relationships, to cut off conversation, to cut off dialogue because the differences feel so vastly um, divergent. And I, I think some of my struggle in writing this book was how do I keep room for people to continue to engage? So if someone reads and has a relationship with a theory, let's say strengths, and I really go as far as I would personally go with it, mm-hmm. do, I, then I, do I lose them for the rest of the book? Did they see it as illegitimate? Mm-hmm. And I just don't know the answer to that. I, don't, I mean, I don't know the answer to it either. And I think that part of what we're talking about related to this idea of deconstruction is, is getting back to that idea of dialectic thinking, right? Yeah. So like we're dealing with a situation where, uh, where there are, uh, sort of a, it, it sort of goes both ways in this idea mm. that you, uh, 
want to you want to critique it, you want to provide a fair treatment. But it, in a way, I think it's also a challenge to say this is something. I think really the critique process is, and this is sort of why I asked the question about you know sort of dealing with relationships and going through that process is it's easier to critique strengths, right? Because like mm-hmm. you don't care if Gallup gets mad at you, right? Like that's critiquing some sort of like big company, right? Whereas like it, it would matter to you if people that you know and care about and respect get mad at you so I, I think that like dealing with the you know how do I treat that you know I just think it was a it was an ambitious endeavor to take yeah. on this to take on this deconstruction well you know when you just said that it triggered for me this idea that um you hit the nail on the head and it, it's uh, it, the personal relationships matter always more to me uh, and this exercise of writing this book, you know, I, I have colleagues who I admire so much who pop out a book every three months, right? They are just brilliant writers, and that is not the process, what the process felt like or looked like for me. Um, you know, I think for me, navigating leadership and our understandings and academia is, is a constant state of fluidity. And so then when you write a book and it becomes this static reality, you're like, oh gosh, like, how are people going to receive it? And more than anything, my hope with this book is that it changes the way people engage in leadership education. And if, you know, in the battle, my internal battle was, I may not have a relationship with every reader. I have a relationship with you. So if you are like, Dugan, what the heck were you thinking when you wrote this about complexity leadership theory? You and I could sit down and have a conversation, but I won't have that relationship with every reader. And if someone stops reading because I've gone too far, then we lose the potential to change and disrupt that dominant narrative. And so it's that sort of like edging between how far do you push when I don't have those relationships versus not. And it's a really fair critique. I mean, um, even the sassiness, you know, I mean, that was some of that was a, you know, a struggle. Josie Bass was very supportive, um, but some of you know the external reviews when your book goes out for feedback were like, mm, "This shifts between very academic in tone and very sort of jokey, like zombie theories, right?" Mm-hmm. And that in of itself is a disruption. So, um, you know, I tried to write the book in a way that was developmentally sequenced, but I think maybe one of the costs of that was some theories where if they were at towards the end of the book would have been deconstructed even more mm. than if they were at the front of the book mm. or I would have would have been more candid but again you know I think it's about how do you keep people in conversation and uh, let me share just a very quick story when I was in my doc program first class I took Susan Komova as our cohorts in there as our seminar mm-hmm. and we read this piece by um I'm going to forget the, uh, Luz Damatakos and a colleague. And it was sort of an indictment that was written as a position paper in student affairs and higher ed about what we're doing. And we were reading this and we were like, isn't this a little dated for us to be reading? And we weren't quite sure why Susan was having us read it. And we read it and it really, I mean, I had never read something that took a field to task the way this document did. And then we had a conversation afterwards about how the way it was written almost eroded the argument itself mm. and that part of what and Lou at the time was still alive and was we, we sent him questions and he responded to us as a class which was wonderful but he we we talked about and, and Susan sort of gave us the contextual history there of what he was saying was so important but how he said it caused people not to listen to the message itself and so you know 
that might have been, you know, I might have been swimming in some deep waters with a flotation device out of my own fear related to that. So, and you know, I think of ways that that happens for all of us in our work. So we're with a group of students and we're wanting to push learning so hard versus meeting people where they are. And, you know, maybe sometimes we hold ourselves back or we don't, but yeah, I think that is a huge, huge fair critique, but also something that readers should keep in mind as they read it too, right? Mm -hmm. That um, it may not be going far enough in some cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that that uh, quote that you that you talked about with um, that you used with uh, talking about bankruptcy. I just think that it's oh. such a such a powerful idea, and and I think that the task of reconstruction is much harder. I had that like in the show notes here, and. Yeah. Um, I, I read something recently, it was a piece in the New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert, where she talked about, and I, I could be getting this phrase wrong, but she talked about the the myth of ideological certainty. I think mm. that was the phrase that she used, but she was basically talking about, it, it was a one of those like weird articles that they do where there's like three sort of uh, similar um, uh, books that have come out recently, yeah. and then they write sort of like a think piece about the book, sort of. And this one was about evolutionary psychology, and it was talking about this um, thing in particular that she was talking about was this idea that we, as the whole thing was talking about why humans are rational, right? Yeah. And the whole uh, the whole concept, which I think really, um, which I think really validates the idea of leadership as a process, is that people evolved not to stand by themselves and make really rational decisions. People evolved to be in cooperation, mm -hmm. right? And that there was more value in sort of uh, in sort of the evolution of human beings in being able to win an argument as opposed to, uh, you know, like that was the sort of primary yeah. motivator because then, you know, everyone is succeeding, right? So it was like the whole article sort of read to me as a validation of leadership as a process. But this thing that she was talking about, uh, that it was someone, she was talking about someone else's book, which makes this all confusing, but <laughs> what she, what the, these folks were saying was uh, that we as humans are really actually very good at deconstruction, at deconstruction of other people's things, yeah. and it's such a challenge to actually do the same thing for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I thought that that was, I thought that that was really interesting and made me think, you know, like, so, you know, what does reconstruction mean? Um, so what was your process? I think there's a lot of great ideas in the book for uh, for reconstruction. So w what was your process for generating those ideas? Because basically every time I would read something, I would be like, oh, they're not talking about this. This is a way to make it yeah. better. And then like the next section would be like, oh, there it is. It felt very thorough to oh, me. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, again, I, I have to give so much credit to the book club and all of the folks who were a part of that because what we try to do is model the process versus me just sitting in isolation doing it. So that collective cooperation, that idea of what I bring to a deconstruction and a reconstruction won't be what someone else did, uh, might do. But we also wanted to do it in a way that stimulated the reader. So the goal was not, and you know we say this up front in the very beginning of the book, this is not going to be an expansive and exhaustive deconstruction and reconstruction. We are just gonna toss possibilities, and there's an infinite number of possibilities of how to deconstruct and reconstruct each of these. And we're not going to present as many as possible because we don't want the reader to walk away and say, these are the deconstructions. We want them to be stimulated to come up with their own. So when we sat in a room, we would take a theory, um, we would have done, so we, we looked at 20 years of journal articles across about five or six of the top um, leadership journals. We then went back to source material. We looked at um, other journals in nursing and communication. We read exhaustively. And then we dialogued. So we would go into a dialogue and a student would be responsible from the book club 
or one of our team members, we had professional staff there as well, would come in and say, okay, we're doing implicit leadership theory today. They would have done an executive summary saying, here's what we know about the theory, here's how research evolves it. And then we would just go at it and we would say, okay, well, what do you bring to this? How do we think about this? What do we think this looks like when it plays out? If this were used in a leadership education program, what might students come up with? And so then we took you know pretty uh, deep notes on all of that. We recorded all those sessions and then we went back. And so what I tried to do is say, we're not gonna do the same deconstruction and reconstruction in every chapter. Let's give different ways. So sometimes it's more academic, sometimes it's redrawing a model, sometimes it's thinking about how does this look like in a specific scenario. Um, and then we tried to sort of build the complexity of that across the book. I think, you know, what ended up in the final product, I mean, the, the length of the manuscript was double what's actually here. Hmm. So there's really probably two or three books. Um, and so it ended up getting reduced. But that, that filter was what is going to stimulate someone else around possibility thinking hmm. um, so that they're the critical learner. You know, my big, my big fear, Miles, is I don't want someone to read this and come away and say, oh, this is, du like, this is Dugan's truth. This is what we now need to do. What I want them to walk away with is say, here's multiple modes of sense making and I'm going to be a critical learner and I totally de de disagree with this deconstruction. I see how that might be a reality for John Dugan and the gr group of folks he's working with at Loyola. But in my reality here, mm -hmm. based on my social location, my institutional context, it's different. Mm -hmm. And then to have the agency to claim that. So mm -hmm. I don't know, does that even answer your question? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think that, so it sounds like, to use a Heifetz term, it sounds like you created a holding environment. And, uh, and that, that, you know, and I think a real strength of this book is that I think you're very transparent with what you're saying about, you know, like, my fear is that people will say this, because I think there's a very clear indication in the book that says, it's basically a call for sourcing, right? It's basically this idea that like, so we were in this room, we worked together, this book is the end product of that, and now we want everyone to work to say, you know, to say like, let's work in a strategic faction and let's come up with some solutions for how, how it is that we can make these theories, these, you know, these sort of building blocks for what it is that we're doing, how we can make them more applicable. I should have had you do like the foreword for me, Miles, because <laughs> you're saying it better than I could ever say it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's nice. You waited a long time for that. Uh, so, uh, you introduce a lot of levity in the book. You've talked about sort of tonal, uh, switches and how you really kind of leaned into that. Um, and uh, as someone who just read the book came out, you know, a month ago now, and I've read it in like the last three weeks. So I've been on a pretty sincere brain spin through this <laughs> process. Uh, I'm thankful for the levity that you introduced. So I wanted to hit on a couple of hidden gems. Yeah, and really, and really, uh, really talk about those. So uh, would you care to weigh in on whether leaders are born? Uh, I believe your quote about the debate is that you find it to be mind-numbingly frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, that is the exact quote, and um, that might have been, a, have been one of the points where I was also holding back slightly. Um, yeah, so I, I am over this argument. I have had it <laughs> officially. So to take a quote from RuPaul's Drag Race, I am over it officially. Um, done. We should quote not RuPaul's even Drag Race more on this podcast. Yeah, I think maybe every time we I, could have... Well, yeah, I would like that. that that'd be great. I'm going to try to work on that. Okay, so here's the secret history um, that I, I can't believe I'm going to share. I, like, people who know me closely know this. I actually um, dated a member of the original cast. Is of, that right? Yes, yeah. And oh my, my 25th birthday, birthday had several performers. I'm 
um, much older now, but so <laughs> I have a special place in my heart for RuPaul's Drag Race because I know several of the people who have appeared on it. Um, I have a special place in my heart for RuPaul's Drag Race because I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't you love that? Because I watch it on television and I love it. That's, you know, my, that's my feeling. Miles, in some ways, that show is both a mainstreaming in ways that we could critique, but also has this savvy sort of undercurrent of mocking what it's also doing. So, you know, that may or may not have been a source of inspiration for some of my writing. <laughs> um, so back back to your point. Um, I'm done with the topic. I actually had a quote in there when I, you know, the, one of the early first drafts of, you know, from uh, Trump saying, you know, you're fired, either born a leader, you're not, and took it out. Um, because the feedback was at the time, and so this was like three years ago, no one's going to know who that is, and now he's our president. So mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, right? But, I mean, I think that is a dangerous argument that has absolutely zero support or evidence, um, promotes not just a story most often told or dominant narrative, but pervasive whiteness, pervasive masculinity, genderism, all of the isms are perpetuated by this idea of some heroic person who was born as sort of a prophet to lead us. And so, you know, when, if you, when you look at the factual information, if you look at twin studies and genetic research, we know that no more than 30% of, um, you know, compositionally from DNA and genetics, no more than 30% constitutes someone's leadership ability. And that's only based on a dominant prototype of what leadership mm -hmm. is. And so when we, I think, continue that, it's problematic. So, yeah, I, I was a little um, direct in that statement. <laughs> all right, so we need to... This This was my favorite uh, thing that we need to talk about. Uh, all right, so page 61, uh -oh. figure 3-1. Did you think you were going to get away with writing Shift Happens in your graphic about the story most often told? So just for context for everyone, John is talking about the story most often told... There is someone who has done one of these chronological studies and is pointing to James McGregor Burns' work in 1978 as being this moment where it flipped from, from leader-centric to leader-process. And instead of writing, I don't know, something else, you in a chart include Shift Happens. So did you think you were going to get away with that? I did, and That's here's why. I, I totally thought I was going to get away with that because people don't read for that. I also swear in the book, and it got caught in some places, not in others. And I was so thrilled that like some of it actually got through. Um, uh, here's why I knew I was getting to go, going to get away with it because the original chart is um, directly from Susan Comeves. So when I learned about the evolution of leadership theory, she was the one who was breaking down the paradigm shift and drew that on a chalkboard at the time, right? And then Julie Owen um, uh, and. Wendy Wagner and uh, some other colleagues and I presented at an International Leadership Association conference. And I can take no credit for that. It was Wendy Wagner, I think, who, or Julie, it was either Julie or Wendy who actually put that as the title of our session. And I think it changed, I'm not gonna remember the history, but it changed, but that was like a running joke amongst us that we somehow got this conference proposal in uh -huh. around Shift Happens. And so I had to put it in there. And you know, we had a, a joke when I worked at University of Maryland, we would go to sometimes like these sessions and whatnot. And uh, Julie and Wendy and I would slip in odd language and see if we could get away with using it in these different spaces. And that was one of them. And, and there's others like collaborators and um, you know just collaboratory, collaboratory, <laughs> collaboratory action um, and so you know some of that has slipped uh, is in the book partially as sort of uh, let's see if we can get away with it 
So I thought we would, and I'm glad we did. So you have to, we have to give a lot of credit to Julie and Wendy for that. All right. Well, it did not miss my, my <laughs> discerning eye. All right. So uh, for my last uh, funny thing that I thought you said in the book, there are others that I'm not pointing out. But uh, so this also goes against the point that I was making earlier about you really toning yourself down. So uh, in addition to trait-based leadership, are there any other, and I quote, junkyards of scholarship that you would like to expose? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> It's fun when you all of a sudden remember everything you've written and you've read it so many times you're desensitized to it. That was the beginning of like a like a large section too. That's that sentence. That one was not tucked away. Right. No. Um so <laughs> here's what my husband would tell you. When I would get stuck writing, we would be sitting there and I would have spent like a week or two and I'm like, I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to say this. And, you know, David Trey Morgan is one of the best human beings I know, and I'm so grateful for him. He literally would say to me, we would be sitting in bed, and he's like, you're not sleeping because you don't know how to write that. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, how about you just take your laptop and write what you want to say, and then do three pages, go to bed, and see what happens the next day. And then when I became under deadline, I just started leaving those things in <laughs> and not going back. But um, yeah, I think there are junkyards of leadership. So in every field, there is scholarship that gets disseminated that is not of high quality. Um, often it's a form of commodification. So someone's making money out of keeping something alive or perpetuating some myth. Usually it's tied to power structures. And so um, there is great trait-based leadership research out there. And Zakaro talks about that, right? But to sort through the mounds of, pardon my language, but bullshit, to get to it is really, really hard. And so, you know, the article after article after article, I mean, we had entire Dropbox folders full of junkyard scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to six people and they said these are the five essential traits. There is no epistemology behind it. It was a survey. It was, you know, what? And this is published. And so, you know, I, it, it infuriates me because people don't have time to sort through that. People often aren't prepared to know. And so you go back to the, the NASPA precon. Distracting people with too much information is mm. a tool of propaganda mm. that allows certain things to surface that reinforce ideologies. Mm -hmm. And so these junkyards are, I think, a vehicle for that. Mm. That's interesting. It's like a red herring kind of. Yeah, thing. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we. I think I don't. I've talked about this before about leadership having this this volume problem, right? It's so big yes. that it's impossible to get your arms around it, and particularly as a student leadership practitioner who's got, you know, your job is not just reading. Uh, you know, if you're if you're doing co curricular work in particular, uh, that. Um, you know, or curricular work, but you know, it's just hard to get your arms around that. So I think the junkyard sort of. I think that's a really interesting point. I'm wondering, Miles, if I should do like a sequel to this book now that's called like I'm over it officially, the like the full sassy version. Like it could be like a director's cut where <laughs> I just don't hold back. I lose my job. I lose all my friends. Right? It does sound like that would be easier for you to write. Right. <laughs> so... All right, so this was just intended as uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here, but this was just intended to sort of start the conversation again. We're going to be back for four more of these uh, with uh, with John, and I've got him uh, I've got him looped in on all of these, much to his chagrin. He was worried about uh, John Dugan fatigue. Uh, I told him that wasn't a thing. So, uh, anywho, my husband would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, so we're going to come back and. 
and do plenty more discussion in the book, but I just want to thank everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community, and thanks so much to Dr. John Dugan. Uh, you can connect with John on Twitter at JohnDugan77, and Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives is available on the interwebs. So uh, you can also get more information about the KC and our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SA lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC, and you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your programs. So please shoot an email to NASPA leader podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, John. Thank you.